0: Well, good morning. I'm hoping that uh, this morning, that as we finish up our summer in the Psalms, that uh, you'll be blessed through what you uh, hear this morning from God's Word. Um, and um, just want to ask you to take your Bibles out right now and turn to Psalm 75. In just a moment, Rebecca's going to come up here and read for us uh, Psalm 75. Um, we have uh, tackled a number of different uh passages this summer. And um, I can tell you this, that uh, as we look at this psalm this morning, um, I think that uh, you'll find that God will use it to speak to us uh, in a new and refreshing way. Uh, And just this morning itself has been refreshing because it moves right along with uh, what we'll be talking about this morning, what I'll be sharing with you this morning. So if you'll please stand and Rebecca, if you'll come up and read for us.
1: reading. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks, for your name is near. We we recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the west or from the east and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to it to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cast off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up.
0: Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we come before you this morning. After having read this passage and Opened this morning with uh, hearts of praise and thanksgiving, uh, asking that you would continue to show yourself as holy, as a God that is steadfast in all that he does. We're thankful for the fact that as we open your word, that uh, we see consistently that uh, you are a faithful God to his people. And that as you have claimed us and made us part of your kingdom, Lord, that we have a faithful God to call upon. Lord, uh, would you allow for me to be able to uh, be a faithful mouthpiece to your word today? I pray that the words that come from my mouth would be edifying and building up for uh, all that hear. And we ask for your presence, uh, your Holy Spirit to be working in each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, the last uh, week and a half has been nothing short but of uh, challenging in my own life, uh, with commitments and a number of different things. Um, our family kind of faced some some new things uh, this past week and a half. Um, I have a, uh, a niece that is getting married, and uh, she's going to get married next month, and we're excited about that. Um, and there was a shower for her last weekend, and. Um, uh, unfortunately, some of the key people that were part of that in the family ended up getting sick with COVID. And so that kind of changes things right there. Um, and it was just kind of interesting to kind of see how all that played out. And so COVID was kind of moving around in uh, one part of our family, extended family. And then also I realized that uh, we had a nephew that was that has moved already. Actually, he left to go to Tennessee. He's the first in our family Uh direct part of my dad's side and my uh, and our home there um, that moved away. And so uh, he took a job that was in Tennessee. And so last Sunday, uh, nine of us uh, men from the family gathered together to have lunch with him to pray for him. Um, and so we brought our sons with us and just had a great time of fellowship there. But you talk about emotions just kind of being all over the place. You're happy for people that are going to do things, Um, you're at the same time sad that uh, you have to walk through saying goodbye or maybe some of the challenging things. And then, uh, of course, the third thing that happened to us was over the weekend, and at the risk of making my wife cry here, uh, we dropped off Abby at Biola University. And so, uh, yes, it was hard, it was challenging. Uh, This is the third time that we've punished ourselves that way. Um, And we have one more child. Josh, you may have to do homeschool college, I don't know, we'll see. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's just kind of interesting, emotions kind of go up and down, don't they, in life? And we face that all the time. And one of the things that I think about with all of this is that, um, you know, life is filled with these events and circumstances uh, that evoke emotions within us. And it's easy for us to remember and commemorate the joyful events However, the painful events and circumstances are the ones that we don't want to remember. Isn't that the truth? They hurt. However, what we're going to be looking at today is that, yes, there were some painful events that happened in Israel's history, difficult times, but in all of that, they look to God and God comes to rescue them. And so we have a wonderful psalm that we're looking at, and you know this is about the God who is the sovereign Judge who sees all things, and and uh, I find it to be absolutely amazing. I want to give you a little bit of background before I give you our proposition this morning, um, and I want you to kind of be aware of this: that um, in this psalm, um, well, this is the. Uh, a psalm written by Asaph, and he wrote 12 of them. And some presume that there may have been more than one Asaph that wrote here, but there are 12 psalms by Asaph, chapter 50 and then verses 73 to 83. And Psalm 75 is the third in in, um, the string of 11 psalms here that were placed together in book three. And traditionally, Ezra has been given credit for arranging the book of uh, psalms and putting them in their order um, and to me, this is kind of a, an interesting thing because when I look at this, I think that you know, there's, he had a purpose in putting these books and these psalms in a certain order. Uh, and remember that um, Ezra was one that was in exile. And so as these uh, psalms were kind of put into a collection or a song book collection for them, that they were very purposeful. And these were songs that were to be sung to praise God and to worship God. And when you think about that, you think about the fact that, you know, this is a circumstance that people are in where their country, their nation has been ravaged, torn apart. And yet, here are these psalms they are supposed to sing. Um, If we kind of just take a look at this, we're going to see that there are different voices that are in this psalm as well. We see that there, it begins sort of with a congregation. Uh, it then moves to also uh, God speaking. His voice is, spoke, is speaking out. And then there's this commentary that comes out or an explanation or an application of how God will do things. And then finally, there is an individual response that comes out of this at the end of the psalm. Um, one of the things that I think is important for us to understand is that all of us want justice, don't we? All of us do. We desire for things to be fair in many ways. And if one thing that would characterize maybe our country uh, over the last three, four, or five years is that there is this clamor out there that is. Asking for justice right now. And as people are clamoring for a form of justice, it is very, very challenging for the believer to think about where does justice come from. Because it's easy for us to get caught up in the conversations around us. And it's easy to say, I'm going to give my input on these things and And this is what I see, but I think that today we are looking at a psalm that is reminding us that God is sovereign over all that happens in this world because it belongs to him. And it's a wonderful psalm of thanksgiving that was sung by this congregation uh, in its day. So with that, the proposition that I have for you today is that the Lord our God is the sovereign king of this world. And he executes judgment over all its inhabitants. And I want to stress the fact that we're going to see that God doesn't need anybody's help. He does it all by himself. All he asks is that you would look to him, that you would honor him. But he says, I am the sovereign God. I am the one who determines what is right, what is wrong. I am the one who will execute justice over all the inhabitants of this world. There is no one that will escape that. Let's begin by taking a look at the first verse from Psalm 75 there. And this section is about God's nearness. God's nearness is to be praised. And you'll notice that the psalmist begins with a declaration of thanks to God. He does not say it once, but he says it twice. And the congregation was to sing, we give you thanks, O God, we give you thanks for your name is near. And the repetition of the words is really a point of emphasis here. The first time thanks is given, it's given to Elohim, to God. And the Hebrew name for God, this is a Hebrew name that is commonly used in the Old Testament, and and really this name for God means strong one. The second thanks offered ends with a reason. And that reason is because God is near. Now, the strong one, their God, was the one Israel called on to save them over and over again, okay? So when you see that name there, when it says God, Elohim, which means the strong one, this is the one they cried out to whenever they needed help. It's the name that is most commonly used in the Old Testament. And so they would say, strong one, the strong God, save us. And then in that second phrase there, as it says, that we recount your wondrous deeds. And so let's just kind of think for a moment, think back a little bit, what they may have been thinking about when the psalmist wrote this is that, you know, how many times did God save them? Let's start with Abraham just for a moment and think about that. Abraham, God calls him and says, I want you to move from where you're at, and I want you to move to a new land. Now, it's a very dangerous thing to do that in those days, to move far away to a land where nobody knows him, and here he comes sort of with a small army of people. He has servants, he has, he has uh, his wife, who is beautiful, and of course, as he moves through there, he has to be careful about what might happen to him. And in fact, in some of the more difficult circumstances that he goes into, He's afraid for his own life, right? And Abraham says that his wife is his sister, which is the half-truth. But nonetheless, he is scared, and he fears for his own life. And so one of the things that happens is that, of course, you can imagine that he's probably saying, God, oh, strong one. Help me. Save me here. And of course, the same thing happens even with Isaac. He does the same thing. And one of the interesting things about this is that God simply intervenes. He moves in. And he brings things to happen where Sarah is at. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, this is... This is this guy's wife. And these kings, these leaders, are like, hey, why didn't you just tell us? We didn't, you know, at one point, God intervenes and speaks to one of the kings and says, You're as good as a dead person. We see also that Jacob walks through similar circumstances. And God's great deed in his life is when he is coming back to see his father, to go back into the land after having been up north, and he fears for his life that Esau will make good on his promise to kill Jacob. And he has received a promise from God that God said, I will be with you and I will go with you and I will make you into a great nation. And so he's fearful. In fact, he comes up with a bit of a plan that says, why don't we divide up the family here a little bit? We'll put part of the family over here and part over here on this side of the river. And that way, if Esau comes and attacks over here, this side will get away. And then he goes and he prays. And he's begging of God for help. And God says, just go. Just go. I'll take care of you. And sure enough, as he meets Esau, Esau's heart has been changed. And he realizes, you wait a second, God has saved us. And we can talk about all the other things that God did to save his people. And the people of Israel knew their history. They were well aware of all the points of salvation that God had given to them as a nation. I think it's also important for us to remember this, that probably the most improbable time in which you would think God would not intervene to help is one that is mentioned in 2 Chronicles 33, verses 9 through 16. And Manasseh is the king of Judah. And as the king of Judah, if you know a little bit about his story, he comes to reign at age 12. And he is the most evil of all the kings. In fact, the Bible even tells us that he sacrificed one of his own children. He led them astray. And he did more evil than the nations uh, from whom the Lord had destroyed before the people of Israel, it says. And here's what it says in that passage that the Lord spoke to Manasseh, and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. The Lord is near. This is is the way in which the people of Israel knew their God, that he was near, they could call out to him. And in case we wonder, like, what happened after that in his life? What did he do? Well, when he came back to Jerusalem, uh, it says that he built an, uh, an outer wall for the city of David west of Jehan in the valley and for the entrance of the fish gate and carried it around Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah, and he took away the foreign gods and the idols from the house of the Lord and the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered it on sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Praise be to God who judges rightly for his people. Manasseh, who did much evil against God, was humbled to the point that he would call upon his God that is near. And the kingdom was restored to him so that he could restore the house of the Lord. Praise be to God. God, God sees these things, and you can imagine that maybe there are some people there that were trying to honor God in Judah that were saying, Come on, God, this guy has been the king since he was 12, and he's evil, and he's doing all these things. And there are people that I'm sure were crying out to God and saying, God, do something. It was an improbable thing, something you wouldn't have expected. And yet God was near to his people. And there are many other countless stories where God comes in when kings are fretting and they're they feel like they're going to be defeated and God walks into the camp and delivers them. The name of God ought to be near to us. I try to remind my own family of the times that we called on God, how he saved us. I often try to tell my kids about the story about my grandparents and how they became the first believers in our family. I want them to know that God is near. I tell them about my own parents and how, when I was growing up, how God was near to us and how he took care of us. When there were moments where it seemed like everything seemed to be difficult and challenging in life. We called out to God. And he provided You know, I know that today that some of you may be saying, well, you know what, I'm the first believer in my family. I would like to urge you to begin to write that story, to write it down, to remember it, to share it with others. Recount the goodness of God. Sing with thanksgiving to God for what he has done. second on here. We're going to take a look at God's warning to all. Uh, in this section, we have the voice of God that speaks out here. And the voice of God that speaks here says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters in all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. And then there's this word, "silah" that's there. And uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. I want to just kind of remind you here, though, that this is as good as it gets for being warned ahead of time. Just think about that. As it says here, even in that last part, verse 4 and verse 5, I say to the boastful, do not boast, God says, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn, do not lift up your horn on high, or speak with haughty neck. I mean, his warning is pretty clear here, isn't it? What God says, like, don't do this. Find it sometimes interesting that uh, as an adult, uh, we give warnings to children. We give warnings to them. And sometimes we give multiple warnings, right? And God's warning is here. Um, God says that at the appointed time that he will judge Fairly. So the first thing to note from this is that God has his own timeline. Which means that he has a plan. Now, I would think that, like I was just sharing a moment ago, that maybe we give several warnings to kids, right? To our children. And hopefully you have a plan with that. Because if you don't, your kids will sniff it out. And they'll just keep going. Oftentimes, we find it hard to endure and to wait for others, don't we? Especially when they're the ones that are in charge of maybe the justice that needs to happen. We become impatient. And and at times, it's even with the people that we love the most. And it can drive us nuts. It can drive us just to this point of like, you know, wait a second. (laughs) You know, you're not treating my case urgently enough right now. And the psalmist reminds us that God is sovereign over all that is happening. He sees and he knows what is happening to you and to the person who has no regard for God. He knows that that person who has no regard for God and his ways, and yet God says, you know what, I'm not rushed by what you want. In 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance yes it may seem that god is slow sometimes in meeting out justice but remember that god's justice is final and so a sovereign god has a plan and in his timeline he will take care of things second god judges with equity In 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11, Paul explains that when God judges, he will judge fairly. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for him, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. Remember this, God knows better than us. Sometimes in my desire to want to see God's justice happen, you know what? I'm often seeing one side of things. God has a bigger view of things, a better view of things than what my view is. And so oftentimes, As as I think about God, when are you going to do something about this? I need to pause and remember to start back to where this psalm started. Praise God for what he's already done and let God do what God does. The third thing God states here is that when the earth totters and everything seems to be out of balance, God is still in control. You know, it's the perfect picture of of justice here. You know, the symbol of justice in our court system is those scales, right? I've been to the Supreme Court on several occasions, and um, being there at the Supreme Court and just kind of seeing uh, the symbols that are there, there are a lot of biblical symbols that come out of it that are placed there. The idea of justice is something that is very, very sacred in many ways, even within our country, and is something that we have here that in other countries does not exist the same way. And I know that we have a lot of people that are complaining about what justices choose to do. So if we look back in the history of the Supreme Court, yes, (laughs) yes. It's been a roller coaster ride. But one thing we know about our God is this: is that He takes a look and He sees what is happening on the face of this earth, and He says nothing gets out of control here. I hold it all in my hands, it's like that scale, and He says it's not going to tilt all the way to one side. You see, in our thinking, sometimes we think that's what's going to happen. Let's take, for instance, uh, what happened in terms of how God dealt with sin uh, in the days of Noah. If you look in Genesis 6-5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But God had a plan according to his own timeline. It says in verses 13 and 14, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, he tells Noah. God's plan was to destroy the wicked and to save the one righteous man and his family. Lot, Abraham's nephew, he lived among a sinful community that received a great deal of grace for many years. And it was in God's timing that he decided that I will bring justice upon the wicked. And so as God wanted it to happen, remember that, you know what, this is Lot and his family were living there and... They were even perplexed about it, as it says. And finally, God does this thing where he rescues Lot and his family, but he destroys the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Repeatedly, God rescued his people as they called out to him during the period of the judges and the kings because... He made a covenant with these people. He loved them. They were his people. And God said, you know what? I will keep my promises. Nothing's going to get way out of whack where you cannot endure. At this point in the psalm, it has this pause that needs to take place. Selah. And if you just kind of think about this as they're singing this and and, uh, as a congregation maybe this was the part where there was a solo and then there's a pause here and maybe there's music that plays just reflect for a moment on this about God's warning and that God's warnings are final really when he says hey this is it and when he brings his judgment as we're going to take a look at next we'll see this the voice of God continues and it says now do not boast and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn, do not lift up your horn on high, or speak with haughty neck. Uh, the language in these verses speaks about pride. I think that's probably pretty evident. God is telling the wicked, back down. Don't think of yourself as high and mighty. A horn in those days was a symbol of strength and might. Just like the animals that used their horns to battle each other, the horn became a symbolic gesture of strength and might. In those days. And one of the best-known stories to illustrate God's judgment against pride can be seen in Daniel chapter 4, where God warns King Nebuchadnezzar about his pride through a dream that Daniel interprets for him. It's an interesting one because 12 months later, after this warning, the king of Babylon there, King Nebuchadnezzar, says... Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for uh, residence and for my glory of my majesty? He's sort of musing himself here. Like, he'd been warned already 12 months prior when he had his dream. Daniel interpreted it, and he said, uh, King, I wish this was for your enemies, but this is from God to you. He does not want you to be prideful. And he has determined that when you become prideful, that this is gonna happen against you. Um, You are going to lose your throne. And so 12 months later, he's standing there and he's musing over how great of a royal residence he has and, and all of this for his own glory and his own majesty. And it says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. And it said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it says, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of the days, when this period had passed, Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, my reason has finally returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. But listen to this, what Nebuchadnezzar says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride He is able to humble. Jeremiah 9, 23 to 24. It's another warning of the same things that God will judge. It says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this that he understands and he knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For it is in these things that I delight, declares the Lord. And God is firmly against pride. It's one of the sins here that we see that God speaks about it over and over again in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And he warns us about it. And it's clear that the wicked, those who do evil, are very prideful. They walk around as if, I'm untouchable. But as we see with King Nebuchadnezzar, whom God had given him, like, hey, Yes, you're going to be used as my instrument to punish my people, to spank them. But don't get ahead of yourself here. I'm the God who put you here. So first, we notice that God's nearness is to be praised. And second, we have noted that God is the judge who rules with righteousness. And next, we see God's judgment of the wicked in verses 6 through 8 here. It says... For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. I'm reminded that in Psalm 121 it begins with these words, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? Don't look there. It goes on to say, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help or exaltation as redeemed and righteous people comes only from God. You can see that in those words that it says there, not from the east or from the west or not from the wilderness comes lifting up. God is the one who will do that. Beware, the temptation in this world is to think that someone will see our plight, our afflictions, and simply make all the wrongs or injustices right for us. It's easy for us to look to people for that and not to God. God is the one who executes judgment, which means that he is not only judge, but he also enforces his own rulings. In our courts, the judge rules, but then you know what he does? He turns over the guilty one to the bailiff, right? Or he turns them over to the system responsible for enforcing the ruling. The psalmist here reminds us That God puts one down and he lifts up another. King Saul saw this firsthand and he tried to fight against it. If you recall, King Saul was the first king of Israel and he was the king the people wanted. He was not the king, though, that they should have had. They had rejected the one king that they had, which was God Himself. And God said, you know, you you people are looking at something different than what I am looking at. But I'll give you your king. King Saul meets a young man named David. This is the one that God had anointed to be the king, the next king. And it's interesting when you kind of see the story that takes place that um, David waited he did not lift up a hand against Saul who was against them the whole time. And Saul was was angry and chased David all over the place. And David had many opportunities where he could have said, I'll take this into my own hands and I'll deal with it. He had opportunity. In fact, at one point, he kind of warned Saul like, you know, I had you. But he also said, you know what? If I do that, David knew that God's judgment would be against him. He needed to wait. In God's execution of judgment, the Bible tells us that Saul fell on his sword rather than dying at the hands of the Philistines when they went to war, and that Saul's heirs also died at the hands of their enemies. May I remind you, David was not wishing on a star for something. I think sometimes it's easy for us to begin to think to ourselves like, man, if only this could happen. But we're reminded here that exaltation comes from God. God will do this in his timing. I want to take you, though, into verse 8. And it says, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. All the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. We have this picture of God holding a chalice in his hand. And, And as you look at this, kind of think about this in your head, this chalice is filled with foaming wine that has a mixture that has been added to it. It's almost like something out of the Renaissance period, like a movie made in that time where an alchemist mixes this irresistible drink, but it's a deadly potion. Here we have a picture of the sovereign king who will execute judgment on the wicked. The psalmist points out that God will pour out his wrath. On the wicked. In fact, the picture is that the wicked are so intoxicated by the desire to know so much evil that they can't even stop themselves from drinking this judgment. Jesus spoke of the final judgment that is to come in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 45. And it says that when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne and it says, and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What a great welcome for the righteous. But listen to what he says a few verses down in verse 41, what he says to the wicked. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me, meaning you wouldn't care for them. It was all about you. It was all about your life. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The wicked will drink the cup down to the dregs, to the very, very bottom. And they will receive their full punishment, Scripture tells us. At the same time, let's not forget who else drank that cup. Scripture's very clear that that Jesus, the one who knew no sin but became sin for us in the eyes of God the Father, that in great sorrow, he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That cup, he prayed, God, I I, I don't want to drink it. The scripture tells us that he was in great sorrow, that he was to the point of death, really, as he was thinking about it. This is is not to be taken lightly, this, this cup that is in the hand of the judge. And Jesus said, If it's possible, if it must be your will, here's the gospel that Jesus, who left all his glory in heaven, would be willing to suffer for our sake. In fact, he faced the full wrath of God, and he drank that cup to the very bottom as he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The judgment and the punishment of the wicked is a terrible ending. And Jesus said that no one knows the hour when the final judgment will come. But when it comes, it will be final. Praise God that Jesus drank that cup for us. And it's something that we can look at, we can say, we don't have to drink it. But at the same time, you might be thinking to yourself like, hey, God, I need to be praying for some people that are, that I know that are doing what is evil, what is wicked in your eyes. I don't want them to have to drink that cup since your son Jesus already did that for them. The psalm ends in a declaration of confidence. It's a personal confidence that can be trusted. It says, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. As followers of Christ Jesus, we will have all eternity to sing the glorious praises of the righteous judge and to declare his faithfulness to us. We'll sing it to him and we'll say, God, you are the most faithful. You were willing to go ahead and to drink that cup for us. You had a place set aside for us. And the psalmist kind of brings us from where it starts from the congregation singing. And together we sing these things. We know these things to be true about our God who is near, who has done wondrous, mighty deeds in our past, the God who is fair in all that he does, that he would even save us. And now as they are walking out, maybe, they remind themselves, but I will declare it forever. With all the breath that I have, I can declare this. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. I don't know if you kind of caught that, but you know, when you see that little phrase like the God of Jacob or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's a reason for it that is there. Have you ever thought about what Jacob was? I mean, his name actually means deceiver. He stole the birthright from his brother. And, um, and yet God allowed him to struggle Against him. And in the end, God said, I will bless you. I will take care of you. I will bring you in. I think sometimes of the fact that God could have brought his justice against Jacob. And I'm sure that the people of Israel knew that. And yet God was willing to be a good God a sovereign God, a patient God, and allow for for Jacob to become a nation, the nation of Israel, from whom all of them had descended. And so when they look at this and they say, the God of Jacob, the one who saved us, who was gracious to us and made us into who we are. God taught Jacob that he is the righteous judge, the God who allowed him to prosper, even in spite of the fact that Uncle Laban didn't want him to. God said, I will take care of you. I will bless you. And for Jacob, because he trusted God, it was counted as righteousness as he submitted to God and then was made into a great nation. I want to conclude by just reminding you of a couple things. The first one is this. Find time to thank God for things of real substance in your life. I know we have um, some young kids in the room right now, teenagers and maybe a little bit younger than that. Um, Thank you, God, for everything, right? Sometimes. Thank you for this. Help us to have a good day in our prayers sometimes. Kids, I want to urge you to do something. I want you to listen to the stories that your parents tell you about how God has been good to your family, how he has been faithful. Parents, share it with your kids. Find time during the week to put aside everything else and just praise God. Second, I want to remind you of this, that as much as we want justice, Pray for patience, for the ability to endure. Because what we don't know is what God is doing in the other person's life or in those people that are doing what is evil and wicked. Little do we know how God will use the suffering that we are walking through. But remember that just as he will deliver you, God has other people that he wants to deliver and i know that sometimes we grow weary we grow tired of god you know we know this person and they they just aren't walking with you they're not can you do something shake them up right away be faithful in your prayers for them endure because god's judgment is final yes God may want to use you as the voice that says, hey, look here. It says, God does not want us to be full of pride, just as Daniel was used. Can you imagine before the king? Like, this is not the kind of thing you want to tell the king. Hey, king, uh, interpretation of your dream, you're too proud. I mean, out with this guy, bring me another guy. But sometimes God needs to use us to be able to speak to people and as much as we want to see his judgment, remember that at the same time that God has the timeline for these things. So offer it to him. He's a good God. He's a sovereign God who exercises justice over all the people of this earth. And rest assured of the fact that in his good time, he will take us to be with him, where we'll never have to deal with this again, right? Praise God for his goodness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in the fact that you are a God who is near. We recount your wondrous deeds of how you have first brought us and grafted us into your family that you have united us with you. And Father, we lament over the fact that there is evil and that there is wicked things that happen and people who, who practice this, Father. And yet we're thankful that at the right time, you exalt the humble and you bring down the prideful Lord, help us to be patient, to endure, to remember that you have a plan. We thank you that you are a sovereign, just God. We ask that you would be worshipped and adored in our homes, in our cars, as we walk around this week meeting other people, being with other people. And that when we come back together again, that your name would be exalted here in the midst, that we might be able to rejoice and to talk about all the great deeds that you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.